And there are several things, foundational things, we need to remember, we need to get down as we, before we get into this. So I want you to take these down, please. Foundational facts to remember. The first is that there are two classifications of sin. Now, I'm going to use this term. It's not the best term. It's uh, misused by uh, some people, some religious groups, but it's the best I can do. There are two classifications of sin. There is original sin, and there is personal sin. Now, when I use the term original sin, I don't mean that as soon as you're born, you're a sinner. I'm talking about the primal sin or the old sin nature that everybody possesses at birth because of Adam's sin. And because we have an old sin nature, we, are, we have a propensity. That is, we are bent, we are inclined to sin. We're going to sin. We have an old sin nature. And the result of that old sin nature is that there is daily disobedience. Now, we all have the same old sin nature, but we don't all sin the same way. So that there is original sin, and then there is personal sin. Now, get this statement down. I believe it will help us to see this. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. So that when you're born into this world, you're born with a nature to sin. There are two classifications of sin. The old sin, original sin, and personal sin. Second, original sin introduced sickness and death to Adam. Now in that garden of innocency, there was no sickness and there was no death until Adam sinned. And God had told Adam, you, the, the soul, the person who sins shall die. He meant not just physical death, he meant spiritual death as well, but he introduced into the world uh, sickness and sin, a sickness and death as a result of that sin, so that there is in this world sickness and death, and it is the result of the primal sin that began way back in the garden. Third, sometimes there is a direct connection or link between personal sin and sickness. Sometimes people are sick because they've sinned. Now, I don't, you don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't have to have some preacher that knows very little about anything tell you that. You know that. That there's some sickness that is directly linked to their sin. Now there is a passage of scripture and I want you to just jot down the reference. It's 1 Corinthians 11.30 and this is the background of that verse. They, the people in the church at Corinth were um, misusing the Lord's Supper and they were not treating the Lord's Supper with the kind of reverence that the Lord's Supper demanded. And Paul says because of this, there are many among us who are sick and some sleep. That is, some have died as a result of it. So there is a direct link between sin and sickness in some cases. In some cases, underline some. Third, sometimes there is no relationship between the two. 
Now I'm going to read two passages of Scripture. The first is found in the Gospel of John. So turn with that with me to that passage. It's the ninth chapter, verse 1. The ninth chapter of John. And if you just want to keep taking notes and make references, listen to him. And as he passed by, he saw a blind man, a, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents that he should be born blind. In other words, they attributed his blindness to that man's sin, that boy's sin, or his or somebody else's sin, you know, his parents. And Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. Now what Jesus is saying, plain and clear, is that the blindness of this man is not the result of sin. His sin or anybody else's. There's another purpose for his blindness that God was going to get. That's another sermon. The second reference I want you to turn to is the third epistle of John, little epistle back toward the end of the scripture, and it's 3 John, verse 2. Listen to this. And Paul is writing to this man named Gaius, and he says, or John is writing to Gaius, saying, Beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health just as your soul prospers. Now it seems from that, the implication of that is that this man was a sickly man and John's uh, desire or request was that his physical health would be as good as his spiritual health. Now I don't imagine very many of us would want that prayed about us. You know, How'd you like to be as physically healthy as your spiritual health? You'd be in big trouble, most of us would. But his prayer is that his physical health would be equal or comparable to his spiritual health, implying that this man was spiritually healthy even though he was not physically healthy. So that sometimes physical illness is not, has no correlation or no relation to sin. So that you can just forget it. If you hear people say, well, I know that they're wrong, there's something wrong between them and God or they wouldn't be sick. Forget it. It's not true. All right, number five. Here's one that'll cause a gasp and raise some eyebrows, but number five. It is not God's will for everybody to experience physical healing. It is not God's will for everybody to experience physical healing. Now I'm going to read 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. You can write that down. You can turn to it in case you don't trust me. Chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, verse 20, it says, Erastus remained at Corinth, Paul's writing, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Now I don't know if you know him very much about the Apostle Paul, but I, you do know that he had this power as an apostle to heal. And he did not heal this man, but left him sick in the city he had visited, or he, he left him sick in Miletus. It is not God's will for everyone to experience physical healing. Paul is exhibit A to that. As a matter of fact, most scholarship believes that Paul's thorn in the flesh was an eye disease. 
All right, background facts to remember, these five. Now, when, how do you deal with this matter of sickness and healing? Some, some spiritual, scriptural steps to employ from the text. First, is found in verse 13, says, Is there anybody, is anyone among you suffering? That word means in distress or afflicted. Is there anybody among you who is in distress or afflicted? doesn't just mean physical illness. If there is, he said, pray. There's one word, pray. Now he doesn't say, pray and you will be healed. He says, pray. And as a matter of fact, he doesn't even say, pray that you will be healed. He just says, pray. And he could mean a lot of things. He could mean pray for endurance or pray for courage or pray for God to get glory in your illness. What he's saying is this, that when you are sick, or distressed, it's, it's really suffering, means distress or afflicted, just pray, take it to the Lord. Are you weary? Are you heavy hearted? Tell it to Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says that don't worry about anything, just pray about everything. So that when you're afflicted or distressed or troubled, just tell the Lord about it, pray about it. And if you want to ask for courage, if you want to ask for, for endurance, remember that faith is not the power to change things the way we want them. Faith is the courage to accept things the way they are. All right, second scriptural step. He says in verse 13b, If anyone is cheerful, let him sing praises. Now what he's saying is this, if anybody's you know, happy and he's not troubled and he's not afflicted, he's not distressed and there are no real problems gnawing at him, just remember to praise the Lord for that. And what I see in that is, don't take physical or spiritual or emotional health for granted. You know, most of the time, the only time we pray is when we're afflicted, or when we're distressed or when we're troubled. What he's saying is this, that, that don't forget if, you, if things are going well for you and you're healthy and, 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 you're, and you're experiencing you know, an absence of distress and affliction, don't forget to praise the Lord for that. Don't take that for granted. I mean, develop an attitude of gratitude for good health. Let me tell you something. The Scripture is a, is a master book on psychology. I'm convinced that if you and I would be, uh, spend a lot more time praising the Lord for our health, we wouldn't be so troubled and afflicted about you know, our little old aches and pains we have. You ever notice that? You start praising the Lord for how good it is. He says in verse 14, is if anyone, that word sick means without strength and it means ill to the point of being incapacitated. This guy is dying he's talking about not directed to people who just have a, you know, a few little aches and pains and sniffles, that always have some little ache and pain. He's talking about people who are dying, cannot continue with the responsibility of life. Now, that's who he's talking about. You know, he said, if there is any of those people like that, like this woman, elders of the church, and let them pray over him. Number one, the sick person is to take the initiative now, elders there is not just uh, is not a term that refers to officer in the church. What we would see as a 
spiritual leader in a church, a pastor, or Now, there's some sick people who feel neglected by the church. But what he's talking about here is this, that if a person is without strength, the church, he's the one to make the contact and to summons those who help. Carry out two functions. They ought to pray over him. Initiative calls for the elders of the church. That shoots down this idea that a person's to go up while anointing folks. He's to call the elders of the church over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now there is, I'll give you that just to try to impress you because I don't know that much Greek, but I do know precedes, precedes the action of the other. Now the verb is, translation is this, having anointed him, pray over him, that is standing over him, praying over him, and the action precedes the praying. Now in the New Testament, there are two words for always conveys the connotation of a religious ceremony and then there means to pour in or pour upon and rub as with a massage as a, that was beside the road it says that he anointed him with oil it, it means that he, he was anointing with oil and, and, and what does it mean? There are some who say well oil was a medicine let a person uh, you know, take advantage of all the the unities of modern medicine. Let him, you know, take advantage of what God has provided in the field of modern medicine. Let him do that first. Before you call for the elders of the church to anoint and pray, you take advantage of, the, of, of what's available in modern medicine. And the other, other interpretation is that a person is to, when he is sick and he's suffering, he is to turn for the help that's available in the anointing and prayer. And scholarship is divided. For example, let me read both sides of the issue. The oil was not, this is American commentary, edited by Alvin Hovey, the oil was not to be used to produce any magical effect, for it was the common means of healing. Celsus prescribed rubbing with olive oil as a remedy for fever. Herod used oil baths to use it in healing. An illusion is made by the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 1.6. That's one side. The other side is in the interpreter's Bible, believe it or not, which is a little bit more liberal. It's kind of surprising. Here's what it says. Here it is evidently presupposed that by virtue of their ordination, their prayer would have a particular efficacy. Pray over him means, of course, pray standing over the sickbed. And then a second and distinct method of relief is, is directed, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. While it is perfectly true that the use of oil as a medicine was widespread in the ancient world, it is not true at all that oil is re was regarded as a cure for every disease, no matter what its nature. Consequently, since here it is used, its use is in command in all cases of sickness, something more than a merely medicinal effect is assumed. That the oil when applied by the duly authorized elders of the church in conjunction with their prayer is believed to have a quasi-sacramental or even holy sacramental healing effect is unmistakable and never should have been denied. All right, you got the two sides of the issue. One side says what James is driving at is this. You get the help that's available in modern medicine 
And then you ask the elders of the church to pray. The other side says, you call on the elders of the church. This is going to require divine healing. You're not going to get well unless God comes down in a miracle and you ask Him to do that. That's, that's what James perhaps is saying. Now, don't fail to notice here that whatever you do in this, in this healing encounter, he says that you're to do it in the name of the Lord. Now watch carefully. The name of the Lord and the will of the Lord are never separated. Never separated. So that when you're doing this in the name of the Lord, you're invoking God's will. You're claiming God's will. And you're understanding that it is God, not God's will for everybody to experience physical healing. Now just before I left Periton, we had a little pie supper on the last night I was there. And this young man came up to me. He'd been in every service. I'd seen him in every service. He sat right down to the front, kind of close to the front. He, he was a young man, about 30. And he said, I'd like to ask you a question. He said, what do you believe about divine healing? And I said, well, I believe that every healing is divine. I do. That's kind of a cop-out, really. And, and, he, and so we got into this discussion about why people get sick. And I told him why I thought people get sick. And then knowing, you know, why people get sick, then we talked about healing. And then big old tears started running down his face. And he told me, he had a four-year-old son that had muscular dystrophy. And they projected that his life expectancy would be about age 12. And he said, can you explain this to me? He said, my wife was looking for an answer. An answer. So we've been searching for answers. And said, just about a month ago, he said, she was reading, getting ready to do her daily, her, her quiet time, her daily devotion. And she was using one of these little devotion magazines. And he said, it wasn't that she just hunting and pecking. She turned the page of that and, and, and she was seeking, asking God for some answer concerning her son. And, she, and she, he said, she turned the page and the first words on the page were God speaking. I will be your healer. And I said, well, if that were me, I would take that as a word from God. Well, that's the way you take it? Did I tell him wrong? I would take that as a word from God. Now, when a person prays, he must understand that he is claiming God's will and he is at the point in faith to accept God's will, you see, before he knows what it is. That's the key. He's, he accepts God's will before he knows what it is. He's that committed in obedience. And don't ever be guilty of separating verses 14, verse 14 from 15. Verse 14 says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him pray over him, anointing with...
somebody called you and asked you to come and anoint them with oil and pray over them, would you do it? You bet your life I would. But as soon as I could hang up the phone, I'd be there. And uh, you got a problem with that? Well, we'll have a little visit with about that after a while. You got a right to be wrong. I, 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 I you know. Now, the results are left. Watch this. The results are left in the hands of God. And there are three results. In verse 15, he's restored. That is, he's saved. In verses 19 and 20, it says, And the Lord will raise him up, and his sins will be forgiven. And I can't find a faith healer in this whole passage. Can't find one. I don't find a faith healer here. I do find faith healing. I don't find a faith healer. Now the application is in verse 16. The application is confess your sins. I'm going to give you four things with regard to that application. Number one, Confession of sin is healthy. Employ it to one another. Confession of sin is healthy. Now I'm doing a class on Sunday night, a uh, little propaganda here, a little commercial on stress. And I, I, I know this to be a fact. I know this is true. That, that you keep pushing inside, of you keep... Uh, repressing and suppressing um, you know your feelings and your emotions you keep shoving them back and shoving them back and shoving them back and what you're going to wind up with is sick you're going to be sick and and if there is no other therapy than just catharsis where you confess all this junk that's inside of you if, if there's no other therapy than just doing that that's, that's, that's something. But when you do that, God moves in to bring healing and forgiveness. Now there are a couple of things that, are need, that need to be said with regard to confessing sin to one another. <laughs> I mean, here's some guidelines. Number one is, don't confess beyond the sphere of the sin. Now, in other words, I, don't, I think that if you sinned against somebody, you ought to go to them instead of getting in, the, in a group of folks and looking over at somebody and say, hey, I hate your guts kind of thing. I've been in some of that stuff. I went off on a deacon retreat one time, and I thought we were going to go down there and just have a wonderful time. And got down there and unloaded and went in there, and, and this guy, the leader of the group, said, now what we're going to do this weekend is get, is get all our sins confessed up. I thought, oh, great. And the first sin was, this guy looked at me and said, Preacher, I've had some bad feelings towards you. And right in front of everybody, he, just told, he started telling me what a scumbag I was. I mean, you know, well, I, 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 uh, it seems to me like that, that, that you don't need to confess beyond the sphere of the sin. If you've got a problem with somebody, go to them. Second, do not confess if the confession hurts as much 
does as much damage as the sin. Now, one time I was preaching a series of sermons on the Spirit-filled life, and I talked about, you know, that before you can be filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to have to get the sin out, you know, confess the sin. And she came to my office, and she said, I've got some real, I'm struggling, said, I want the Spirit-filled life, but I've got some, I've got a sin that, that I'm, I'm going to share with you that I don't know whether I can confess or not. And she told me that, that she had a baby, she was married, and this last child was by another man. And the other man was her husband's best friend. He didn't even know it. And she said, now, should I go and tell my husband? I said, not on your life. I said, while you're over there confessing to him, you're going to cause as much damage with the confession as you did with the sin. Does that make sense? I can see it doesn't. All right, number two. Pray for one another. Second application, pray for one another, prayer for one another is essential, practice it. As a matter of fact, intercession, according to 1 Timothy chapter 2, is placed first in the life of the church. It's placed first in the life of the church. So that God has, it's hard hard for me to say this, but it's true, He, he, He has two wills. Boy, it's hard to get that out. He doesn't have two wills, but he has two wills. He has a will, what is called the will of determination, and that means there are some things God is going to do regardless of how you respond to it or how you react to it. The creation is an example of that. He's going to create whether we want it to happen or not. That's the will of determination. Then there is the will of desire. And it's what God desires, and it's greatly affected by your response and mine, And that's where intercession comes in. He's not going to just save everybody by decree and say, okay, I'm going to save you. But He will save and He wants to save and He desires to save and our intercession affects that in some strange way I don't understand. So He makes intercession to be the first, to have first place in the church. So we need to pray for one another. And we need to pray for sick folks and for folks that are having problems and all that stuff. All right, third. The use of medical advice and assistance is necessary. Obey it. The use of medical advice and assistance is necessary. Obey it. Where do you think these doctors got the ability to do what they do? I think they got it from God. Now, where did they get the brains to do that? God gave it to them. And where did they learn this stuff? God revealed those secrets to them. And they got advice and help, and you need to use it. I just read, read the other day, they got, a lawsuit, they got a criminal charge against a couple that uh, put their child on a starvation diet. Did you read about that? The baby, this kid starved to death. These, this, these, this family and this religious practice. And while this kid was deprived of food and was starving to death, they were giving vast sums of money to the church. It's ridiculous. It's criminal. Stupid. Insane. What it is. In a jail cell in Ethiopia is not (laughs) just too good for them, in my opinion. Now the point is, 
the use of medical advice and assistance is necessary to obey it. Number four. Oh, I want you to get this. When healing comes from God, He should get the glory for it. When healing comes from God, He should get the glory for it. As a matter of fact, He is a jealous God who will not share His glory with anybody. And uh, when this lady was healed in that service, and she was, she, got, she gave God the glory for it. Now, I'm going to tell you this, this story, and it happened, and then I'm through. I've, I've shared it with you before. Some of you here never been here before. Some of you were sleeping first time. I uh, got a call from my friend when I was pastor in Fort Worth. He's an M.D., He's an M.D., and he's been in medical practice since he was a young boy, young man. Now he's about 60 years old. He was an M.D. And he called me and said, Gerald, I'm having surgery tomorrow. And he said, I'm, I'm, re I'm really sick. And he said, I need you to pray for me. He said, they did a biopsy on a, on a growth on my head, and it's a radical form of cancer, and he named it. He told me the name of it. He said, now, that name won't mean anything to you, but he said, I'm, 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 I'm going to die. And, and when I, when I you know, and he's a, he's, a, he's a dear, dear, sweet friend. He, he, delivered, he delivered Michelle, wasn't he? He delivered Michelle. He brought you into the world, sweetie. He, 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 he's a dear personal friend. And I, I was tr troubled with that. And I was visiting in the hospital in Fort Worth, and I saw this guy who was a member of my church who was studying for the chaplaincy, and I, 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 he's now a missionary in Columbia. And I stopped him, and I said, Do you know the, the uh, cancer by the name of so-and-so? He said, Oh, my goodness. He said, That's the worst. He said, What they do is they, they scalp you. He said, They literally scalp a person. He said, That, that surgery is so radical that they won't even let family see the patient for, for about a week. It's just beyond anything. He said, it's indescribable, indescribable. I got to thinking about that. And I, I said, well, I'm going to go out there and be with him. His name is Fred Richards. So I got on a plane and I flew to Amarillo, Texas. He was in the Baptist Hospital in Amarillo. And I went in the room. He has, he has three wonderful sons. Some of, one of them is a doctor. He has a daughter who is married to a, to a uh, all in there and all deeply religious. And, and, and we, we visited a little while. He's getting ready for surgery. Surgery's going. I said to him, I said, hey, you need to be with your family. And, and so I said, I'll see me there and I'll join you. While I was sitting out there, I just felt impressed, kind of crying, you know. And so Fred looked at me, and Dr. Richard looked at me, and he said that God heals. And I believe he can pray to be healed. So we all got down on our knees. He said, I don't know how to do it. After you pray, he said, then I'll pray. And he's a deacon. He's a godly man. He to pray, and then he stopped. He said, I don't need to pray. He said, I've just been healed. I said, well, no use me hanging around. I need to get back to Fort Worth. And I, I said, well, I'll see you all later. And I, I got in my rent car. After I was in my office, phone rang. It was his son. He said, for the surgery, they found that dad had been healed. He's still practicing medicine.
Chiltuya, Texas today. Call him tonight. It's non-ministerial. His name is Fred Richards, and he lives in Tulia, Texas. He glory. God's getting the glory. And not on state old First Baptist Church in Tulia. Came up to me one day. He said, tell me, was you and Fred Richards? And I told him. And he said, I'd give everything I own. He had a huge farm. He has huge farms, and he owns a gin. He's rich. He said, I'd give any, everything I have. Now, everybody says that, but he, he said, I give everything I have to have that experience with God one time. Let's pray together. Father, we want you to get glory. As Paul said, whether by living or by dying, and I thank you that there are those like Dennis Huggins, whose name comes to mind right away. Fred Richards, who living and dying desire for God's glory to be accomplished. And Lord, while we say that with our mouths, some of us have a hard time experiencing it and meaning it down inside. Help us to have that kind of courage and faith and trust. For I ask in Jesus' name, amen. The greatest sickness that anyone has is sin sickness. And the greatest miracle that God ever performs is the miracle of new birth, where He takes the spots and cleans them, cleanses them. Have you ever been born again? Have you experienced the miracle of new birth? Forget about the miracle of healing. That's secondary to that. You need to be born again. Now, let me tell you something. We ought to be more happy about somebody who experiences the miracle of new birth than we are about somebody who's healed of physical illness. That's the greater miracle. And he wants to give you new life tonight. He wants to, he wants to give you a new birth, a new nature. You've got to come by faith and submit and trust, yield your life to Him. And there might be somebody here tonight who needs a new walk with God, a new touch, as Amy sang about. Or you may need to join the church. Well, we're going to, well, we're going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to wait around here. We're just going to do a couple of stanzas. You're going to come. You need to come on the first word while we stand.